we are looking at Romans chapters 1 through 3 for a few weeks here. And we turn a corner today, entering chapter 2. If you've not been with us, we've taken chapter 1 and we looked at, we're looking at sin in two categories from three directions over six weeks. And so we're four weeks in. And for the last three weeks, we've looked at sin as unrighteousness against God, against oneself, and against others. And chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, took us through those three directions of sin as unrighteousness. And now we look at sin as self-righteousness in the same three directions over the course of Romans chapter 2. And today, it is sin as self-righteousness against God. Against God in that, as Sally read the text to us, the hard and impenitent heart. If your Bible's open to Romans chapter 2, looking at verse 5 there, a hard and impenitent heart will not repent, and repentance is toward God. So what we've got on display here in verses 1 through 5 is sin as self-righteousness against God. It's when a person knows what sin is, knows what sin does, has a vocabulary for sin, but will not repent of it, knows that we should repent, but won't. Instead, we hide ourselves from God, and we, we hide in the best of all possible hiding places, in our judgments of others. <laughs> That's where we sin uh, 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 against uh, uh, self-righteousness against God, is that we, we hide from Him in our judgments of others. Sin as self-righteousness against God, this particular direction, we'll look at two other directions of self-righteousness in the two weeks to come, but sin as self-righteousness against God is when a person knows better about sin due to God's revelation, knows sin needs to be repented of by me, but I don't. I find a way around it. Instead, what the self-righteous person does, instead of repentance, is he hides behind his or her judgment of others, a judgment that is fundamentally hypocritical when we do the same kinds of things. And this is what verses 1 through 5 here addresses. And do please underscore that we're looking at the doing of the same kinds of things. Verse 1, verse 3, no one is saying we cannot make moral judgments. Don't overcorrect self-righteousness, that, that anyone who makes a moral judgment is being a hypocrite or picking up stones. No. We're not morally neutral in the church. We can and do tell the difference between right and wrong. When the difference is stark, when the difference is subtle, when it's uncomplicated, and also when it's complex. So the person in view here, the people in view in chapter 2, know better about sin but still do it. And so we get in verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. What things? Well, that takes you back to chapter 1 where Paul makes his case about unrighteousness. Chapter 2 has in view people who know something about that, not just because we've done some of the same things, but also because we know better by what God has revealed to us about sin, sin as unrighteousness, and we know that we know. We're not trying to deny or suppress this truth as we saw happening in chapter 1. So in the two categories, sin as unrighteousness against God denies and suppresses what God has revealed. 
Sin is self-righteousness against God, doesn't deny or suppress knowledge of him and his way and will, but instead deflects sin away from oneself and redirects it onto others. Chapter 2 pivots to the person who agrees with God about the wrongfulness of sin, yet judges others rather than putting energy into repenting. Again, it's, it's not making moral judgments that's wrong. Let's understand this. We do this. We should do this. This is one of the contributions of the church to the world. It's not, it's not making moral judgments that's wrong. It's the hiding from God that's at the heart of self-righteousness when I fault others for what I excuse in myself. This is self-righteousness against God. And don't think of, of self-righteousness as necessarily sanctimonious or, or looking pharisaical. We will talk about that aspect of self-righteousness as we go on in chapter 2. But self-righteousness doesn't always present itself as superiority. It, it doesn't always have to be haughty. If we're a Romans 2 person, we know better about sin because of what God has revealed. We came, we came up in it. Or we've been around it a long time. I just, you know, take myself here. I, I was a good guy growing up. I was the guy uh, in, in high school that, that the mothers wanted their daughters to go out with, right? It didn't serve me so well with the girls themselves, but I at least had the moms. I was Richie Cunningham, nurtured in the Christian faith. Taught from infancy about God. I was baptized as a child. I can't, my testimony is I can't remember a time in my life I didn't love Jesus. I'm a Sunday school native. Well, Paul is, is speaking in chapter 2 to this kind of pedigree. Those of us who've had the benefit of God's instruction in right and wrong, good and bad, in addition to God-given conscience, which is something all people have. To be made in the image and likeness of God is to have a, a conscience, the things that we all know, the, the things that we cannot not know, like torturing babies for fun is wrong. Everybody knows that. People can try to deny it, but they cannot not know it. Why? Because it's part of the testimony of God on the human conscience. There's a number of things like that, like uh, there's no people group on earth that honors running away in battle, for instance. Why is that? Because Lewis, as uh, C.S. Lewis put it, courage is the four moral virtues take at its testing point. Uh, it, it doesn't matter what else is to your credit if you don't have courage when courage is needed. No people group on earth honor running away in battle. Why is that? It's part of the conscience that, that God has imprinted upon all people. It can be denied, but it cannot not be known. So the, the personification of Romans 2 here, who Paul has in mind when he's writing this, is the first century Jewish person who is looking around himself at a pagan world and finding so much in it that offends him. And not just because of his conscience, but also because he had the law and the prophets, the Jewish person. So when Paul says in verse 1, therefore you have no excuse, O man, Every one of you who judges. Who's doing the judging? He has directly in mind a, a Jewish readership, as the rest of the chapter will bear out. We'll see this. 
Jewish readers, Jewish hearers in Paul's time might want an escape route from the condemnation of all humanity in chapter 1. Why? Because from the Jews come the patriarchs. From the Jews come the promises of God, the prophets of God that lead the world to the Messiah of God, also Jewish. There is an ethnic aspect to the argument here all through these three chapters that Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile alike are all under sin. Paul is cutting off all escape routes. We're all under sin. There's no exceptions. Sin is not just unrighteousness, chapter 1. It's also self-righteous. We get into this now in chapter 2. So if you're a first century Jewish person hearing this, reading this, you knew when it came to sin that you had more to go on than just your conscience. In fact, Paul will make this explicit in chapter 6 and 7 of Romans that we don't know what sin is really unless we have a law that teaches us by naming our, our untoward ways what that is, that sin, and the Jewish people receive this. And this extends on us, uh, out to us as well, Americans, <clears throat> people that Abraham Lincoln called God's almost chosen people. And if you're an American Southerner, how much more so? Here we live in what Flannery O'Connor called the Christ-haunted South. We have churchianity all around us. Bless our hearts. We know what sin is. And what it does, and, and what it does to us, and what it does to others. And so when Paul begins to probe here in chapter 2 on us, people with our pedigree, our background, our familiarities, when he says, for instance, in verse 3, do you suppose, O man, there it is again from verse 1, do you suppose, O man, verse 3, you who judge those who practice such things, such things in chapter 1, yet do them yourself. How do we judge these things? By God's revelation known to us. He says, verse 3, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do themselves, do you think you're going to escape the judgment of God? Paul says, if this is you, you're in a worse state with God if you do know better and yet still do condemned things. Now, let me remind us right here of our redemption in Christ. Because it's very important to note in a passage like this that in Christ we are covered from the condemnation of God. In fact, as Paul goes on in his argument in Romans, where does he come to in chapter 8, verse 1? That great statement that we all love. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's building the case for condemnation in Romans chapters 1 through 3. That Gentile people are under sin and it manifests more as unrighteousness. And, and Jewish people, people with a pedigree with God, are under sin as well. And it manifests more as self-righteousness. God may yet have to discipline us, but the condemnation is off the table, Romans 8.1. He may discipline us if we don't abide Romans 13, which says, Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. If those in Christ do condemn things, we might know the discipline of Christ. And this is a good thing. In fact, uh, it's actually in a communion context, fittingly, because we're going to take communion momentarily. But there, over in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about that if we learn to judge ourselves truly, we won't be judged. And he doesn't mean the, the condemnation. He means the discipline. 
Because he goes on to say, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. That's key. But what's the point in Romans 2? The point is the self-righteous needs saving also. Not just the unrighteous. The good person needs Christ, not just the bad person. Paul is building a case. In fact, uh, he says in chapter 3, verse 9, he gives the case that he's building up to. Chapter 3, verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And charging the Jews with this, chapter 2, is a big part of this. But why does he make this case? It is to offer each and all of us a caseworker. It is Christ himself that the provision of Christ applies to the self-righteous as well as the unrighteous. Look, when you take a step back and you look at chapters 1 and 2 in Romans, what do we see? We see sin is, it's not just natural for us to sin in our fallen state, to sin and even to descend in sin, as we saw last time in verse 32, in chapter 1, verse 32, that they know God's decree. Those who practice such things deserve to die. Not only do they do them, but they give approval to them. We sin and we descend in it to where we call evil good. And we, and we cheer on those who are, are doing it. This is, this is the natural state of fallen humanity. How natural it is to sin as fallen people comes through clear in chapter 1. But in chapter 2... We also see how unnatural it is not to sin. This is why verse 4 reads as it does. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing? Do you really not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? These are remarkable terms in context, looking at verse 4. Look at it. Verse 4, kindness and forbearance and patience with the good guys? Why? Because we've earned God's kindness and patience through our goodness? Is, is God more disposed to the, to the good moral people who sometimes do bad things, you know? No. Kindness and forbearance and patience with us because Romans 2 people don't have any problem agreeing with God that sin is the world's problem. The problem we good people have is agreeing with God that sin is our problem. No full stop, no, no hedging. I'm not as bad. It's not, it's not the scale. Why are these terms in verse 4 remarkable? Kindness, forbearance, patience. Because you have to be kind to people who don't get it. You have to be forbearing with somebody who, who needs room to get it. You have to be patient with people don't get it. And how do we show we don't get it? Every time we give ourselves a pass for something we fault another for. Tim Keller was in Memphis this weekend, and he's really a master at, at showing the sin behind the sin in his preaching. I got to hear him Thursday night, as did a number of you, he spoke on generosity at the, the venue where I, I heard him. And in the course of his comments, he mentioned how, how often Jesus addressed greed 
that Jesus talks a lot about greed. And when he addresses greed, he tells us to watch out about greed. And his watch out is interesting because Jesus doesn't tell us to watch out for sexual immorality, for instance. And why not is because you don't have to be told when you're being sexually immoral. And Keller has a very humorous way of making that point plain. But you do have to watch out for greed. Because it's, it's easy for us to think ourselves not greedy. But it's also easy for us, putting this into a, a Romans 2 context now, how easy it is for us to condemn the materialism, keeping this in a greed kind of uh, wavelength here, how easy is it for us to, to condemn the materialism that is not our materialism? So, for instance, uh, if somebody uh, buys a lot of new clothes or is constantly getting a new car, and, and, you, and you say, well, I don't, I, don't, I don't know about that, but then you let your materialism go. Keller said his materialism is new books, so is mine. Less conspicuous materialism. After all, I'm building a ministerial library. I'm doing it for you. Right? Not to show how smart I am. No, I never have that intention. Less conspicuous materialism, but the same things are going on in my heart that go on in the heart of the more conspicuous consumer. Just a different manifestation. Again, why are these terms in verse 4 remarkable in the context of address in chapter 2? Because you have to be kind, forbearing, patient with people who don't get it. With people who need a lot of time in order to see it and get it. A lot of grace. And how do we show we don't get it? Every time we give ourselves a pass for something, we fault another for. And this can be so subtle This can be uh, so undetectable in us. Sin is so much our natural habitat that it is unnatural for us not to sin. And God knows this about us better than anybody. You have to be, in fact, you have to be supranatural, not just supernatural. You have to be supranatural to not sin and yet be human. And only one pulled that off, the Lord Jesus, fully God and fully man. Dilly dilly. All right? That's just a self-righteousness test for you right there. That's the new way culture says that's great. How natural it is to sin comes through clear in chapter 1. Doesn't it? Doesn't chapter 1 tell us how natural it is to sin? How unnatural it is not to sin comes through in chapter 2. Even people who know better than to sin, sin. Now, let's talk about us in Christ again. Us in Christ, we have a power from him to resist sin. We're not helpless. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit of God and the community of the church to fight a good fight. We can, if you like the old uh, way of putting things, we can mortify the flesh, you know, if you're sort of Puritan in your reading and things you like, the older stuff. But even people chosen by God, the first century Jewish person knew himself to be chosen by God. Even people rescued by God 
can sin. And even if someone were to say, well, I didn't ask to be chosen, you know, or I didn't ask to be rescued, even so, if I really come to agree with God what sin is and what sin does, that it vandalizes shalom, God's design, his, his imprint, his will and way for human flourishing and wholeness, that's what shalom is. And if sin is a vandalism of that, and if I know this and really agree with God that, that he's only obligated to judge me for my sin and my contribution to the vandalism, and this leads me to repent of it and receive his provision, and then I appreciate his rescue of me from his judgment... Even so, gratitude is not enough to keep us from condemned ways of living and being. Do you realize that? Gratitude is good, but even gratitude can be used by our self-righteousness to flatter ourselves and deflect the call to repentance. See, I can think myself so grateful to God for this or that that I have nothing to repent of. My books, my books are for ministry. Not to show others how smart I am. I'm grateful for my books. God knows. And I am grateful for my books. But watch out for greed. Watch out for pride. Even with a ministerial library. Or let's put it in the sexual immorality vein since that was mentioned earlier. Your viewing habits online include pornography, and you will not make yourself accountable to anyone about it, but you're really grateful for your wife. God knows you're not trying to hurt her, but you see what you're doing there? You're using gratitude to deflect the call to repentance. How could pornography really be a problem if I am, God knows, so grateful for the woman that really matters to me? See, self-righteousness twists thinking like that. We use a good thing like gratitude to cover a base thing and keep ourselves from the work of repentance, which is usually best done in community with others, not just independently of others. And repentance is a work Christians give ourselves to frequently because sin is our natural habitat. Like a fish needs water, Christians need repentance. I'll give you a famous biblical example of the way that the thinking twists. King David, when Nathan confronted his unrighteousness against Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, the Bathsheba affair, Nathan went indirect. Do you remember this story? 2 Samuel? Nathan goes indirect in confronting the king. He, he comes into David's presence and he tells David a story about a rich guy taking this one lamb this poor guy owned and treated like a pet and the rich guy takes that lamb and and slaughters it to serve guests for an evening meal even though behind his house on the hills are the bleeding of a thousand flocks and the text says David burned with anger and said the guy who did this deserves to die I will see justice done here and Nathan says you're the guy David was guilty of a spectacularly destructive sin, both in immediate effect and ongoing consequence. But in that story, it's not just his unrighteousness that's on display. It is his self-righteousness that's on display as well. Because sometimes you never care more for what's wrong 
or for what's right than when you're wrong and you know it. When he condemns the other guy for the very thing he was guilty of. This is how we hide behind our judging of others. We never care more for what's right than when we're wrong and know it. The person with a regular porn indulgence expresses outrage at Asian sex trafficking, young girls in slavery. But what finances that modern slavery? What keeps that in business? You do. See, you'll never care about genuinely repenting of pornography so long as you see it as a purity issue only affecting yourself and, and, and not a justice issue affecting thousands of others that you're hurting. Paul is telling us here in verses 1 through 5 that the hallmark of self-righteousness against God is how we double down on our condemnation of the very acts God condemns. We agree with Him, and yet we do the same things. We agree with God it's not right, and yet we excuse ourselves in the doing. When Paul, look at, look at the way this rolls in these two chapters. If you're looking at your Bible, chapter 1 here, it's not until the last verse in chapter 1 that Paul says, look how bad this can get, that you give approval to evil. Not only you do it, but you give approval and you cheer it on and you, and you dismiss it as, as that's the way it ought to be. You make what God says wrong right. That's the worst bottom part of unrighteousness. But when Paul turns to self-righteousness in chapter 2, he starts with how bad it is. We agree with the God we know is there and holy and just, what he says about sin, and yet you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Again, this is not about making a right moral judgment. That's part of the church's call in the world. This is about doubling down on self-righteousness as cover for unrighteousness. And if we keep doing this against God, God can call off his patience. Exhibit A, Israel of old. God's kindness and forbearance and patience with the self-righteous, verse 4. If the self-righteous keep presuming on it, Verse 4, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? The riches, meaning he's generous with this. Not knowing, do you really not know God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? If we won't be led to repentance, God may not offer his patience. And so verse 5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Where did we see wrath before? Chapter 1, verse 18, against unrighteousness. Chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Here it is again, chapter 2, verse 5. Wrath, now against self-righteousness and right off the bat. Why? Because the self-righteous know better. I know a lot of us will struggle with these three weeks here. We will struggle to believe God finds our self-righteousness as contemptible as our unrighteousness. But think of it this way. 
if in unrighteousness we spite God, we deny Him, we suppress His knowledge, in self-righteousness we hide from Him in the worst way by agreeing with Him that His condemnation of sin is right but still trying to locate our life in it, still trying to navigate our life by it, sin. A hard heart comes from doubling down on something God says will never be enough for you, it will never complete you, it will never satisfy you, but the hard heart stays after it anyway, keeps trying to find life there. Life in Christ is a life of repentance. Repentance, whatever else it means or involves, it means coming out of hiding. The table is a, is a greater place as any to come out of hiding. When you come to this table or when the table comes to you and you take the elements, you know, I, earlier I, was in, I, I made a reference to 1 Corinthians 11 and, and that passage is the passage in the New Testament that talks about, that warns about taking community, uh, communion in an unworthy manner. You've probably read this. That's the manner that we're describing this morning. The hard and impenitent heart, the self-justifying heart that says to God, no, I, I won't repent. I don't have need of repenting. It's worse when other people do it. That's not so bad for me. See, I used to think in my youth, I appreciate the fact that I was raised in church, but some of us for whom that happens, we do have to unlearn some things because the church is a culture and, and things, there, there's some accretions and some barnacles that happen in a, in a cultural context. You need to get knocked off your ship. And I used to think in my youth that communion required self-loathing to not take the communion elements in an unworthy manner, as 1 Corinthians 11 warns us about, that, that it, it meant I needed to, in essence, hate myself for all my wrongs. But it's not about self-loathing. How could it be? God's not honored when you loathe what He loves, and He loves His people, you and me. The unworthy manner in communion is about continuing to hide myself from God. It's knowing better about sin due to God's revelation about it, in agreement with Him about it, knowing my sin, my sin needs to be repented of by me in community with others. Come out of hiding. But I'm unwilling to do it. I'm, I'm unworkable with God's Spirit to catalyze and cultivate repentance fruits. I'd rather just be a churchgoer, not a disciple. I'd rather just be present to a Sunday morning experience, not a follower. Communion is a time for us to be softened again. That's the beauty of the table. It softens us to our Savior, whom we resist in our self-righteousness. We're made mindful again when we come to these elements just how far God was willing to go to rescue us from condemnation. And we hold two simultaneous truths together, both of which are articulated in Romans, and I mentioned them earlier. Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he went to the, to the, to the hilt for you and me. Romans 13, 14, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Why? Because his flesh was given. His blood was poured out. 
God, I have to go looking for life in the things that gratify the flesh. And so we come to this table this morning, a grateful people. We come to this table not with self-loathing and condemnation for our sin, but reckoning ourselves as those that Christ has done a work in and for so that we are not condemned. But we also come as people who are sobered by the reality of taking these elements as identifying with one who in his resistance to sin did shed his blood and did allow his body to be torn and given for us. That's the confidence and the assurance that we come to communion in. And communion softens us when this is our mindset. Not when we go through this Rolodex of, of, of personal inventory of how bad I am. But when we focus on how good he is to me in my self-righteousness, not just my unrighteousness. And so if my elder deacon brothers will stand with me, we're going to distribute.